Hey, welcome to New City Online. I'm Ron, I'm the online pastor here, and if it's your first Sunday tuning in with us, I want to say a special welcome to you. You can learn more about New City by going to our website, newcity.us. And if you want to connect with us, you can go to newcity.us slash connect, fill out the form there, and I'll be in touch with you this week. And if you want to connect in a super easy way, you can grab your phone right now, send me a message to 704-389-5333. You can ask any questions about New City as well as send any prayer requests. I'd love to be praying with you and for you this week. And if you want to partner with New City and giving, you can do that easily as well. Just go to our website, newcity.us slash give. Now we're going to join Jay as he leads us in worship. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in today. Will you join us in worship? Stand 
grateful to have the gift that's grace that falls fresh on us every day. I pray this song reminds you of why we have hope. And that it's a fresh reminder of the grace that comes from our awesome and loving God. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested, my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphaned heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace, so washes over me. You have made me new life begins with you. Least from my chains, I'm a prisoner. No. My shame was a ransom.
This fall season, I have figured out the secret to making a great fire really, really quickly. It's something called fatwood. I had never heard of, heard of it before, but a friend introduced me to it. All it takes is one or two pieces of this sap dense wood to start a big fire really, really quickly. And it's amazing as we think about God's word and we come to it today that God only needs a couple of key ingredients to spark a fire in our hearts, to spark a, a revival of movement of his spirit. And they're really these two things. This is what God has used all throughout history to, to spark his uh, fire of renewal and movement uh, in, in the lives of people. It's his word and his people, really, really simple. The, the two primary factors involved in, in God bringing about a revival, a movement of his spirit are his word and his people. And all it takes is a, is a few people that, that, that come underneath the word of God, God's truth, uh, for God to move in an incredible way, for, for him to have his way and to spark a, 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 a true fire in our hearts. And revival isn't uh, just about a, an event. I know some of you grew up in church and you used to go to a revival. You would go to an event. But what we're talking about today as we continue our series in Nehemiah is, is really a movement of God in the lives of his people. And again, these two key ingredients, these two key factors that God has used all throughout time are his people and his word. And, and, and as those two things come together, that, that holy intersection of, of God's people and his word, God can spark a fire of, of revival and renewal in our hearts. It was just over 500 years ago that this happened on the continent of Europe. As a few people, again, just a few key people, just small ingredients came together under God's word and God did something amazing. I love what one commentator wrote about just, again, a small group of godly people who came to God's word and, and fully obeyed it and God ignited a, a gospel renewal of revival. One commentator said it this way, Wycliffe struck the match Huss kindled the coals and Martin Luther brandished, brandished the flame. The, the Reformation had come and, and revival was occurring at the intersection of, of God's people, even just a few of God's people coming underneath God's word at this intersection. It's incredible to see what can happen when God moves in this way. Again, just a, a, a few key ingredients, a, key, a few key factors to bring about revival, God's people and God's word. And so the very first recorded revival or spiritual renewal that happens in the Bible is found in book of Nehemiah. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah together. We've covered the first seven chapters and we're gonna be in Nehemiah chapter eight today. So I wanna encourage you to, to open to Nehemiah chapter eight. If you're following along on the app, it's already preloaded there as well as the, the outline where you can fill in some blanks. And we're gonna start by just reading the very first verse of this spiritual awakening, this revival that happens. It's the first one that's recorded in the Bible as a group of people, God's people come together under God's word, those two key ingredients and factors. Let me begin by reading Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one to you. And all the people, what does all mean? All means all, that's all all means. All the people came together. They were gathered together as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord has commanded to Israel. So you see these two key factors, again, that God uses for a spiritual movement for revival right here in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. That God's people are assembled as one man. All the people come together. And then 
Ezra, the priest, brings the book of the law, the book of Moses that they had, the Torah, which would have been the first five books of our Hebrew Testament, and he begins to read it. And and here's this holy intersection again between God's people and God's word. Now, just for some context, for those of you who are maybe just joining us for the first time in the series, uh, or or you've missed some of the messages and you don't really know what's going on uh, as we as we jump into chapter eight here, just for context, the first seven verses and or seven chapters in two minutes here. Okay, Nehemiah has come to the city of Jerusalem. The walls around Jerusalem lie in ruins. They need to be rebuilt. They need to be restored. God uses Nehemiah and his leadership to cast a vision to rebuild the walls. But we're going to see here in the second half of Nehemiah that there was something so much more to it. But the walls around Jerusalem, uh, most people think it would have taken that group of people about two years to to rebuild it. They did it in 52 days. This was an an only God story that's recorded in the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah, of of how God came and brought these people together through the leadership of Nehemiah to to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And then we we, we saw last week in chapter seven, as as Pastor Travis and Pastor Rodney led us through, that that after the the, the walls were, were rebuilt around Jerusalem, the people were assembled and they were counted. They were living safely in their homes. So, so God had bought, brought about kind of an order to the city and a protection from their enemies, but there was something missing. And again, as we come to chapter eight here in context, Nehemiah realizes as the leader, as the governor of the people, that something is missing. Even though the walls have been rebuilt and, and, and life is going on as, as normal, you know, they're, they're, they're protected, they're living in their homes. Uh, there, there's, there's order that's been brought there, but something is missing. And what's missing is their, their spiritual lives, their spiritual renewal. Something is missing on the inside. Nehemiah senses it, that there's a, there's a spiritual vacuum with God's people, that they, that they haven't intersected with God's word and, and God hasn't moved in their, in their lives. So there's, a, there's an emptiness. And I know for some of you right now, just to take a quick time out, you're sensing an emptiness in your life that something's missing. Maybe everything is going right at work. Maybe things around you have been, have been rebuilt, that, that, that things are in order and running the way they're supposed to be running, but something feels missing. There's something more to life. That's what Nehemiah senses, is that even though God has moved in a miraculous way, the walls have been rebuilt, order has been restored, people are living in their homes safely, that's not enough. God wants something more for them. God has moved, this is what I wrote in my notes, God has moved around them, but he hasn't yet moved within them. They haven't allowed him to move within their hearts. It reminds me of a story that I heard about an inventor that that created this incredible machine. It had all kinds of of, uh, pulleys and and lights and and levers and and cogs and wheels and gears and uh, uh, belts. It it was something to behold, this machine was. And people gathered all around this machine to look at it and just just watch what, what, you know, the displays and all all the things that happened with it. But finally, someone got up the courage to ask the inventor of this incredible machine, what does it do? And the inventor said, oh, it doesn't do anything. It just looks great. Maybe we could, we could say the same thing about the, the, the people of Israel this time. What is all this for? The walls look great. They've been rebuilt. You're, you're living in your homes. Things are uh, uh, ordered in society. But what is it all for? What, what does it do? Maybe, maybe uh, that's a good question to ask yourself. Like maybe on the outside, everything is put together. But what's it all for? What's the purpose of all this? Last week we learned in chapter seven that God's purpose for rebuilding is always spiritual renewal. 
God's purpose for physical rebuilding, uh, rebuilding on the outside is always about spiritual renewal, something that happens on the inside. Let me translate it all, all the way to the Gospels. In Mark chapter 2, uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a man that's, that's lowered down to him in a little home that he was teaching in and healing people. Uh, it, it, he was a, a paralytic and his friends lowered him down. And he sees the faith of this paralytic and he says, Sons, your, or, son, your, your, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the religious people who were all about the outside uh, and not the inside, they, they questioned Jesus as they always did. And Jesus senses this and he says, do, do, you, do you think it's easier to say, son, your, son, your sins are forgiven or, or easier to say, you know, rise and walk to, to heal physically? But then he says this, he says, so that you may know that the son of man, referring to himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat and walk. In other words, he gave a physical sign, a manifestation physically of what he wanted to do inwardly, spiritually. And so as we come back to Nehemiah chapter eight, we see that God wants to do something so much deeper in our hearts and our lives in the lives of, of his people. The apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He said, you know, even though we're wasting away outwardly, we, we, we praise God because inwardly we're being renewed, renewed day by day. God's doing something on the inside, so much more than what he wants to do on the outside. So the material needs of the city and Jerusalem have been met, but, but the, the spiritual needs have not. And so Nehemiah senses as the leader, it's now time to concentrate on what God wants to do on the inside of his people. It's not just about the physical. Ultimately, it's about the spiritual, about what God wants to, to do to renew his people. So Nehemiah knew that God's work of rebuilding the walls around his city was just the beginning of God's work of renewing the hearts of his people, the people within the city. And so Nehemiah, I think you would agree with me as we've gotten to chapter eight here, Nehemiah was an incredible leader. He's a great example of what a godly leader is meant to be in so many ways. And one of the ways that we see an example of godly leadership is that Nehemiah is, is um, very able and willing to pull other leaders in to lead with him, to, to delegate responsibility and authority. And so as he senses the spiritual vacuum, the walls have been rebuilt, order has been restored, but something's missing. God wants to do a work inside in the hearts of his people. He pulls in the priest Ezra. Now, Ezra's been referenced a couple of times uh, as we've gotten to chapter eight, but just to introduce you to him, Ezra preceded Nehemiah into Jerusalem by 14 years. He returns to Jerusalem and begins to, to pray for the people, to pray for spiritual renewal and revival, the very thing that we're talking about. And I love this from Ezra chapter seven, verse 10. Ezra says this, that he had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, the very thing they're reading now, and to do it, and then listen to this, and to teach it to Israel. So for 14 years, Ezra has been preparing for this moment in chapter eight to read the law of the Lord to the people as they're assembled. And it's amazing how God uses different leaders, different people, different giftedness to do his will, to bring his people to his word. So Ezra now kind of takes center stage. Nehemiah take, takes a step back and he pulls Ezra to center stage as the priest because he knows that he'll do a better job of getting this in, inner work done with the people. So Nehemiah, again, just to state, Nehemiah brings God's people and God's word through the person, the leader of Ezra, the priest together in this holy assembly in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one. Now remember the two elements of revival. Remember the two elements of revival, God's people and God's word. And that's what we're seeing here. And, and, and God's word doesn't change. 
So it's really on God's people to bring themselves under the authority of God's word, right? Remember, God's word isn't here on equal, equal level with us. It's not under us to be subjugated by us. It's over us. And as God's people bring themselves under God's word, this intersection of the two, God can do something amazing. He can revive us. He can renew us. He can create a movement in our hearts that lasts for centuries that we're still talking about today from Nehemiah chapter 8. That's exactly what's happening here. But God's people have to put themselves under God's word and respond to his word. And so for the remainder of the message, let me just quickly look at three different responses as we study chapter 8 together today. Three different responses of God's people to God's word, these, these key ingredients for revival. The first one is that they understood God's word. Let me read uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 to you. This is the, the understanding of the people. As they hear God's word, they begin to understand it, which is so key for us in our response to God's word. Uh, again, verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square uh, by the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law, the Torah, the, the word of God that they had, and, and uh, he began to read it to the people. Um, verse two, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand it, uh, understand what they, what they heard. Everybody who could understand, in other words, uh, the, the reading of God's word were there and listening to it on the first day of the seventh month. This was the, the Hebrew new, new year. Verse three, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, that's key here, all the people, everybody who could, here's our word again, understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform, just picture this in your mind's eye, in front of all these people um, that they had made for this purpose. And then there's 13 different names mentioned here. You can pronounce them on your own from verse four. Other uh, um, teaching priests who were there to help Ezra uh, make the word of God understandable to the people. Verse five, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and he opened it and, and, um, and when he opened it, all the people stood. This was a sign of reverence that all throughout the early church, in fact, when God's word was read, they would stand uh, out of honoring God's word and, and, and wanting to understand it and pay attention to it. Verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God and all the people answered, amen, amen. And they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped with their faces to the ground. So there's this visceral response to God's word as it's read and, and, and it's understood. Verse seven, there's another list of 13 names that you can pronounce on your, your own. Other godly people that probably represented the 12 tribes of Israel and the Levites uh, as, as, um, as, the pre, as, as helping the priest, as teachers of the law to come and help Ezra uh, with, with the understanding of, of God's word as the people are listening to it. And then verse eight, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people could understand the reading. Now, this is a lot, right? I understand that. But, but it needs to be um, mentioned here that the, the word understood is written six different times in this chapter because of the emphasis on the people, not just hearing the word read, but really understanding what God's word was saying. You know, the Bible isn't a magic book that you can just recite and it's going to change your heart and your life. You've got to understand it which means you gotta meditate on it, which means you gotta be uh, with other people that understand it more than you. You gotta listen to their teaching. It's something to be understood. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower. He talked about God's word being uh, spread and how uh, the seed that really takes root 
The, 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 the seed that's really understood in my heart is the one that produces fruit. The Bible has to be understood and we're getting a picture of that here. You gotta remember that God's people in that day didn't have the word like this. It wasn't codified in this way. We, they didn't have the full counsel of God like we do. They had the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Testament that's known as the Torah. They didn't have the full counsel of God and they didn't have it written for them to take to their homes like we do. And for many of them, they, had, they, they, they hadn't heard the word of God read in this way. So we get this insight into for the first time them hearing God's word read and understanding it. And it's a beautiful thing when God's people begin to understand God's word. Just real quickly, verse eight. I think we get um, an insight into what the purpose of sermons are and teachings, right? I, I love how this is recorded that they, they read from the book. So this is Ezra and all the other 26 men and the Levites that were there to help him teach. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So they read it, then they, they gave the sense of what was being said in it, so that what? So that the people could what? Our key word here, our first response, they could understand it. They could go and live it. What's the purpose of listening to a sermon or coming and hearing something read if you don't understand it and you can't take it and apply it? So we see the purpose of, of every good sermon is to go to God's word and to read it, to give a sense of what's happening in it so that the people, all of us, God's people can understand it, put ourselves under it and go and live it. The first response of God's people to God's word, these two key ingredients for revival is that they understood the word. Here's the second uh, response that they rejoiced in the word, or they, um, yes, they, they rejoiced in the word. There's this uh, uh, emotional response that there was, a, there was something that happened as they heard God's word read. They, there was a visceral response that they had to it. Namely, as we look at the passage, they, they um, were mourning, they were weeping, they were crying. Uh, look at verses nine through 12. Their, their response when they hear God's word, all of God's people, they, they begin to mourn and weep because they realize how far, far short they fall of God's standard. And, and, and ultimately, this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter three, that the law, what they were reading, these same five books of the Hebrew Testament that we have, as they hear the law read, they understand that the standard of God is perfection and holiness. And the law is what Paul says in Romans three, it convicts, the law can't save us, but the law convicts us. It convinces us of how far short we fall of God's standard and convinces our hearts that we need a savior, that we know now to be Jesus himself who came for us. The, the people of God here in Nehemiah 8 are looking forward to Jesus. We're looking back to Jesus and the work of grace that he accomplished on the cross for us. But the law has the same purpose in our lives as it did for the people in Nehemiah 8. It convicts us and there's an emotional response. But I want you to see here in verses 9 through 12, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, all the priests, all the teachers there that are helping the people to understand, they say, no, stop crying. Stop this response this, mor this morning, this morning. There's a place for that. But today is not that day. Today is a day of rejoicing. There, there should be joy that comes from hearing God's word and understanding it. And it's ultimately the joy of the Lord that becomes our strength in our lives. Again, Ezra reads the word. The assembly's first response was conviction and grief, but quickly it turns to joy as they understand that God has called them to live in a relationship with him and an understanding of his presence in their life. And it's that understanding, it's that submission to his law that brings about ultimate joy. So let me say this to you today, because I know for some of you, joy is such an elusive thing in your life. 
And for many of you, you're, you're living for happiness, these, these temporary moments of happiness and not what is being described here in Nehemiah 8, which is the true joy of the Lord that doesn't change based on circumstance. Just a quick teaching on this. Happiness is always based on your circumstances and our circumstances are always doing what? They're changing. It goes up, it goes down. What Nehemiah is describing here, what Ezra is describing here, what we're seeing in this revival, this movement of God and God's people as they, as they understand his word is a rejoicing in his word, a joy that comes in his truth. Joy is not contingent on circumstances. Joy is contingent on understanding that God's truth in our hearts and obeying that, putting ourselves under God's truth in something that doesn't change. Let me say it this way. The secret to Christian joy the secret to joy for those of you who are followers of Jesus is to believe what God says and then to act upon it. Faith that is based not on our circumstances or changing, changing things, that's happiness, but faith that is based on God's word, coming under God's word, brings about ultimate joy and rejoicing in our lives. And that's what we see happening in verses nine through 12 here. This rejoicing in God's word because they finally understand the, the, the God that they've heard about, the God that they claim to follow in their lives. Now they're finally understanding it and, and it has a an emotive response in their lives that's something beautiful to see. And the same is true for us. When we hear God's truth, it's not just an intellectual response in our head, there's a heart response. Something happens to us that changes, that causes us to have a different perspective and to not just live based on our circumstances, but to live based on God's truth and what he's doing inside of us. Here's the third response. We said that there was an understanding, that people understood God's word. They rejoiced at God's word. There was an emotional response in their hearts that turns from grief and mourning to joy in their lives, true joy. And here's the third one. There was an obedience to God's word. There was a desire to do what they're hearing, to live it out in their actions, to do it. It's what James said, you know, don't just be hearers of the word, but be what? Be doers of the word. Go and live this out. And we come back to Nehemiah 8.8, 8, that uh, when Ezra's teaching and the other teachers are in, in groups of people in the assembly there and helping them to understand, which by the way, is our model here too at New City, that we're, we're in rows oftentimes for worship or, or we're watching online, but then we need to get into community. We need to get into circles, smaller groups of people where we can really understand God's word and go deeper in it. So that the third response, that we can apply it, that we can obey it, that we can live it out. So they're, they're, they're reading it, they're giving a sense of it so that people can understand it and live it. And that's ultimately the response that we see happening here in Nehemiah 8 in verses 13 through 18. They understand specifically that this first month of the Hebrew calendar that they're in right now, that, that this new year, if you will, it had all kinds of different festivals and different things that are meant to be commemorated and celebrated. And there's one specifically called the Festival of the, the Booths. They would construct these temporary shelters to remember and commemorate the journey that they took from, from Egypt all the way to the promised land in 40 years where they lived in temporary shelters and God provided for them. So remembering is so important, remembering what God has done. That's what he tells them to do here in his word. And what do they do? They immediately go out and they start constructing these booths. And they, 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 they immediately put into practice and apply what God is telling them to do. And there's great joy in that. Look at verse 17, Nehemiah 8. It says that they were rejoicing, that there was great rejoicing as they were living out what they heard. As they were constructing these booths specifically, as they were doing what God's word had commanded them, there was much joy in their hearts. The joy of the Lord is our what? It's our strength. And joy comes as we put ourselves under God's truth and we obey as we live it out. God doesn't give us joy instead of sorrow. 
And God doesn't give us joy in spite of our sorrow. God gives us joy during sorrow as we obey his truth, as we live it out. So there's this head response of God's people as they understand his word. There's a heart response as they understand what true joy is, not happiness based on circumstances, but joy and, and, and knowing God's truth. And then there's, there's hands, right? They put into action what they're hearing. They begin to live it out immediately what God commands them. And they, they, they really understand, maybe for the first time for many of them, what it means to be God's people living on mission in his world. Remember all the way back to what God said to his people in Genesis chapter 12, I'm gonna bless you as he says it to Abraham and then to all of Abraham's descendants, which all of these people standing there were part of his descendants. And so are we because of Jesus as Christ's followers. He said, I'm gonna bless you so that what? So you can be a blessing. So you can go and live on mission in every sphere of society, whether you're a, a business person, you're in government, you're in medicine, you're in education, you're in sport and media and art, whatever your sphere of society, uh, whatever your culture, whatever your calling in your life is, you're meant to go represent this truth and live it out in front of other people with your head, with your heart, with your hands, all of who you are. That's what revival is. It's not an event. It's a movement of God and the hearts of God's people, all of God's people, their head, their hearts, and their hands. Revival is more than an event. That's what we see happening here in chapter eight. It was more than just an event. It was a movement that God did in his people at the intersection of his people and his truth of his word. So here's my question as we close. We see God moving in such a powerful way here in Nehemiah eight. We see these two key, key ingredients, these two key factors of God's word and God's people but it has to start with someone. And so here's my question. Could it start with you today? God's word hasn't changed. And as God's people bring themselves back to God's word, something changes in our hearts. Could that start with you? Could it start with us, New City? Every single one of us, no matter where you are today, no matter where, where or how you may be listening to this or watching it, could it start right where you are? Could it start with us as a spiritual community called New City Church? Remember this bottom line that revival, right? Revival is the intersection. It's the intersection of God's word and God's people. This holy intersection of God's word and God's people. Let me make it more specific. It's your heart, it's your life and God's truth. Right at the intersection of that lives this amazing spiritual fire, renewal, revival movement that God desperately wants to do. I referenced before that 500 years ago, there was a revival that happened as a few people, again, few key ingredients, a few people uh, took God's word seriously and began to put God's word into the hands and the hearts of God's people. And one of those leaders was a man named Martin Luther and he wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress. And we're gonna, we're gonna close with that today. But before we do, I wanna ask you, wherever you might be today, I wanna ask you right where you are to pray with me today as we close. Let's pray together. Father, we don't begin our prayer today with a, <clears throat> with a declaration, we the people. Today we begin our prayer with a confession, we your people. We your people who are called by your name. We confess that we your people need to humble ourselves and to pray. We, your people, we want to we seek your face. 
we are people, we want to we wanna turn. We want to turn from our wicked ways. We want to change. We, your people, want to seek that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That you would forgive our sins and that you would heal our land. So today, we thank you, Father, that our citizenship is in heaven and that we're now ambassadors of your kingdom as exiles living in this strange land. And it can be a strange land and we are living in strange times. So may our message be simple and clear, the message that Jesus brought to us. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change, come back to me. We pray this week that every candidate that's running for office would have their hearts turned to you. We intercede for them today as your people. We pray for their families. We ask that your loving kindness would surround each and every one of them. We ask that your wisdom would be placed in their hearts and their minds as they seek you. We pray for each and every one of them that they would know you, Jesus, as their Savior and as their Lord. May our momentary excitement this week or our despair this week uh, in the election results be, be swallowed up in this eternal truth that you, Jesus, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and you're making all things new, beginning with us. You, King Jesus, are not up for election and the only opinion that matters now is the opinion of the Father who has accepted your sacrifice, Jesus, on our behalf to now be perfect and complete, not because of our works, but because of your grace by faith. And however much time we have left on this earth, all of us together, may we, your people, seek the welfare of our city, beginning right here in this city that you've called us to. May we pray for our leaders as we do so this, uh, today. Would you help us to keep pointing people to the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus? And now more than ever, we're aware that living in these dangerous times calls for a people who are faithful, who will continue to put themselves under the authority of your word. Jesus said the days are evil and we know that this world is passing away. This, this is not all there is, but you're with us. You promise that you'll always be with us even to the ends of the earth. You are our rock, you are our fortress, so we will not be shaken. We will not be afraid as your people. So we, your people, declare that you are a mighty fortress. We declare that you are our God. And we sing this final prayer to you today as we go. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never fails. I'll help her here amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and long with On earth is not his Strive 
Thanks so much for worshiping with us today, New City. If you would, extend your hands for a benediction as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. Go in peace, New City.